Good morning, friends. How are we doing? My dad says hi. He's doing very well, still recovering. Thank you. The prayers are working. Frankly, if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch last week's. If you weren't here, I'm not going to go through all that again. Um, so you were here. Uh, proposition for you today. Uh, you want more than, and history needs more than a perfect God. If you had to plead your case before a judge, would you want an artificial intelligence judge? You know, perfectly fair and binary to the law, never gets a thing wrong. Or would you want one capable of emotion and thought, careful in consideration, faithful to the law, empathetic? You don't want a perfect God. You want more than a perfect God. And history needs more, whatever, wherever you stand and what's happening in Gaza, does it need something more than a perfect God that's happening in Israel right now? Richard Longenecker says in his commentary on Romans, he says that the righteousness of God is the thesis statement of Paul's letter. Chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, we went through this what seems like two years ago. Uh, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, It is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is being revealed through the gospel. From faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. One of the reasons you're not listening to someone give homily in a priestly gown today, but you're listening to someone do something like preaching, wearing J. Crew, is because uh, of a man named Martin Luther. Perhaps you've heard of him. Martin Luther, 16th century monk, uh, professor of theology, preacher. On average, preached, I think, a sermon every two days for like six years or something. Um, Trained lawyer, Aristotelian, philosophical expert. Uh, He's also the instigator of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, We're all here today. Uh, You have to hear Martin Luther's words. I was transcribing this, and I I ended up transcribing the whole quote, so you're just going to have to deal with the whole quote, because it's that good, it's that relevant for your life. Martin Luther says to the righteousness of God, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. But my situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a righteous and angry God. Rather, I hated him. I murmured against him. But I clung to the dear Paul in his great yearning, and I had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between righteousness of God and that statement, the righteous will live by faith. Then I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is thereby justice, whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Who's yours or his? Thereupon I felt myself reborn to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning, whereas before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, now it had become to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And one of the things synthesizing that. You draw a lot of things from it. Luther says that the idea of a perfect God just doesn't do it for you. It just doesn't move the needle. 
You don't fall in love with a perfect God. No one loved the perfect kid in high school. You wanted to be him, but you hated him or her. You want something more, and history needs something more than a perfect God. The whole of Scripture shows us. Now, Romans 3, where we're going into today, it requires a long overdue history lesson that I've put off, um, even in the Bible studies. But the significant question you have to ask, you don't have to answer, you have to ask when addressing Romans to have any kind of, what does this mean for my life, is who are the people of God? Who's the true people of God? The elect people of God. Who are they? You don't have to answer it, you have to ask it. Paul was addressed, has, was addressing this question. It's what he wrote. Two things, two reasons why he wrote this letter. This was the first reason. Who are the people of God? What say you, Paul? So in 49 CE, here's our history lesson. Claudius Caesar, Emperor Caesar, uh, expelled all the Jews from Rome. His uh, ancient historian, Roman historian, Suetonius says the expulsion of the Jews was at the constant instigation of disturbances at the name of Christus, Latin for Christ. So the Orthodox Jews and the Christian Jews, they were called the Nazarene sect of Judaism, they were not getting along in synagogue. They had different ideas of how things were were to go. So 49 CE, he throws them out. Now, here's here's where it gets sexy, if history can be sexy. 54, Acts 18 attests to all this. You can go look it up in, in the book. 54 CE, Emperor Claudius dies from food poisoning from helicopter parent mother of succeeding Caesar, Nero, who, plot twist, was Claudius's then wife. If you think ousting a speaker of the house is cutthroat politics, I mean, you should read Roman history, the drama of the empire and the republic and that whole deal. It's like Imagine if Kevin Spacey's House of Cards had a kid with Star Wars, and then that kid grew up to have this kind of weird mid-1970s Elton John phase while at Harvard Law. That's like Roman history, as close as I can, I can get to it. So 54 CE, edict ends, edict ends, all the Jews move back into Rome. And Roman Christianity is remarkably more Gentile in aesthetic and practice. There's a sign in, in South Dayton, at a South Dayton church, Southeast Dayton church, I won't mention where. It says, worship the way you remembered. Woof, right? <laughs> Anyone want to worship the way they remembered as a kid? Uh, so the Jews returned, and as the great Harry Styles would say, you know, it's not the same as it was. Synagogue, the church, was different than the way Jewish Christians remembered it for a variety of reasons, and Paul's letter indicates the major theological dispute is who are the people of God? The Jewish boundary marker People haven't been gifted the law that judges. Or Gentile Christians, liberated by grace, free in Christ, inclusive to all. And that is why Paul says, What then? Advantage. Romans 3, 1 through 8. Does the Jew have? What is the value of circumcision? Well, actually, there are many advantages. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, And their unfaithfulness will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Absolutely not. Let God be proven true and every human being shown up as a liar, just as it is written, so that you will be judged in your words and will prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, well, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says. 
Absolutely not. For otherwise, how could God judge the world? For if by my lie, the truth of God enhances his glory, why am I still being judged a sinner? And then at that point, why not say, let us do good or do evil so that good may come of it? As some who slander us allege we say, their condemnation is deserved. So I wanted to give you a couple quotes from this passage to show you how hard I worked. <laughs> Thomas Schreiner of Southern Baptist Theological said, this is a most difficult passage in Pauline scripture. Douglas Moo, evangelical scholar, in his 1,000-plus uh, page commentary, if you're interested in doing some reading, says, as one sails through the seas of Rome, Romans, it is in this passage where one encounters storms. A uh, more liberal voice for you, James Gunn, University of Durham, England, attributes the dis difficulty of this passage is that it's a bridge. And if you don't cross this bridge, you don't get the whole letter. You only made it, you only made it, it's like, this is like the Leviticus of reading the Bible through through a year. It's like you get to chapter three and you're like, screw it, I'm done. I'm, I'm not reading it anymore. Um, one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, a Bethlehem Baptist, uh, claims in one of his older sermons I was going through, he says, Paul probably got in trouble here by his original audience. His audience, it having gone over their heads, he says, um, his dialogical rhetoric and references, his audience would have said, Paul, don't you know that like half of your listeners are illiterate slaves? So by approaching the righteousness of God, one of the most highly disputed topics in all of the New Testament scholarship, um, this is ministry malpractice, basically, is what I'm doing today. And that's the point of giving you those quotes. It's above my prayer grade, but it gives us some direction because we won't trek every ascent and descent of this mountainous passage. If we did, it would no doubt turn into a lecture of the subjective and objective nouns and Greek. And it's just, I want to be home watching NFL at one o'clock more than any of you do. I don't want to still be here. We can understand it. It would just take a long time. So we view this passage, we can still, from a distance, see the peak, the outline of the horizon. And what is the outline of the horizon of this passage? What is the peak? It's the righteousness of God. That is what clues us into how we'll go about it. And that is, what is the righteousness of God? Why do you and I need it? And how does it come about? Very natural questions. What is it? That's verse 5. Why do you need it? That's verses 1 and 8. How does it happen? That's verse 3. See, it's all mixed, it's backwards, and it's, we're all confused already. Um, but it's actually necessary, because as you saw, Paul is having an argument, isn't he? He's arguing with someone. He's actually arguing with two people. He's having an argument. And so to most synthesize this for us, to understand it, you've got to rearrange some things. So, so number one, what is the righteousness of God? This is from verse 5, a seemingly passing phrase. He mentions the righteousness of God, but it's the core, as I said, the thesis statement of the whole letter. Now, the righteousness of God. Um, it would do you best to understand what Pluto and, and, and Aristotle said about their use of the same word that Paul uses. But all you need to know, I did the reading for you. All you need to know is justice. When you think of the righteousness of God, you think of justice, okay? The righteousness of God is, is two parts. To, there's two parts to justice. You think of justice, what, broadly, what does someone do that, that, that's executing justice? You have sentencing the guilty, or you have what? Acquittal justification of the innocent. It's broadly two sides. So I want you to think of righteousness. This is, very, this is crucial. It's like a coin, okay? The righteousness of God is like a coin. Two parts. One part salvation, the other part judgment. Inseparable, though. Inseparable. You don't have a coin if you separate a part. So the righteousness of God is something of a thing that is of inherent value of itself, righteousness, but it can be given, declared, 
imputed, imparted to another. But it's inseparable to parts. Now, if, you, if you're thinking, if, if, you, if you just sat there and I told you to think about this for like, like 20 minutes, you would eventually get to the part, well, it doesn't make sense. So he saves, but at the same time, he judges, but at the same time, he saves. There seems to be a contradiction here. It doesn't all, it doesn't all make sense. I seem to have to choose one or the other. You'd be correct in finding that contradiction because that is exactly the argument Paul is having. I'm going to paraphrase the argument Paul is having for you and what is raised by his objectors. They say, there's a problem with your logic, Paul. Your theology is incoherent. It's inconsistent. How can God be righteous if he justifies the guilty, if he saves the wicked, if he unites with unrighteousness? And we'll raise you another one, Paul. How can God, or is God not unrighteous then, if he, judge, if, if, he, if he judges the sinful people? Is God not unrighteous if he does not welcome in the refugees, victims of the sinful world? Haven't you read, Paul? The Lord says, I will not acquit the guilty. That's Exodus 23. Have you not read, O Paul, that the Lord says, whoever sins against me, I will blot him out of my book. In that day, I will punish their sin. That's Exodus 32. And don't you know, Paul, the Lord stood in Moses' presence and said, I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's Exodus 34. Perhaps as Porcius Festus accused Paul, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. So what say you, Paul? Paul has a lot to say, believe it or not. But we have to find out why does any of it matter first before we can see what Paul says. So number two, why do you need it? Why do you need the righteousness of God? Why do I need it? Why does the world need it? Why does history need it? The church is a dangerous place, the most dangerous place, if you stay around long enough and you don't let the gospel, the substitutionary gospel, the vicarious act of Christ, transform your heart. Because at some point in your faith journey, if you haven't already, we all do it, you'll become, you'll drift into one of two sides of Christianity. The one side overemphasizes salvation. The other side overemphasizes judgment. And you'll, you'll do this, and you'll become discontent with your faith. You'll blame it on the church, that it's too big, that you didn't feel connected, the pastor was impersonal, uh, he didn't endorse your political position, the list goes on, I've seen it all. Um, we all do it. We all get there. So the spectrum of Christianity, it gets split if you're not transformed by the gospel. It gets split into you either take all of salvation I'm just going to leave the, ju the judgment stuff over. I'm not going to. Or you take all of judgment and you just, no, I don't think God saves at all, really. I think he's pretty disappointed in all of us. And these two sides of the spectrum are apparent with who Paul's arguing against. Verse 1 and verse 8. So in verse 1, the first side of the spectrum, the religious fundamentalist, does God reward you by being an obedient, morally beating OP people in being excused from the judgment, which was reserved for the rest of the world. Or on the other side, as a good Westerner, as a societal liberationist, God's salvation is owed to you. Because it's all grace, he's love, and therefore you're free to live however you want. I'll illustrate the, the liberationist side first for us Westerners here. The liberationist is on the salvation end of the spectrum, overemphasizing a truth of God, taking to an extreme overemphasizing a side of the righteousness of God. It's my right to be happy. 
It's God's duty to forgive and save. In the playroom of this world, we are free to make a mess as long as we don't hurt anybody. It's God's job to clean up the mess of the toys at the end of the day. This is like uh, Oprah theology. You get salvation. You get salvation. You get salvation. In this worldview, there's no distinction between the world and the church. God's love and grace just relativizes it all. If you, if you, if like, there's any part of like, you examine yourself. There's any part of you. This is the application for for some of you today. If there's any part of you that that recognizes this, if you fear the judgment side of God, of His righteousness, then you don't understand the cross. You have not seen the love of the cross. So your application is: if you fear judgment, go to the Lord. Ask Him to reveal His judgment to you. You know what you're going to find? Mercy, and you're going to find grace. If you go to him without fear. The other side of the spectrum. The the religious fundamentalists, the the morally pious. This side overemphasizes the judgmental side of the righteousness of God. There are morally obedient people. People of God that establish clear boundary markers in society that would isolate them, insulate them rather, to everyone else to whom God's judgment is reserved for. Clear boundary markers. They don't drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, or date girls that do, as my dad would say. Had to have a little bit of his spirit here. Now, uh, there's, not a me- like, there's, there's not a message of, there's not a portion of the message that I prayed through more than about what I'm about to say by illustrating this point. I've looked for every other way to illustrate it, um, and so I'll just have to trust that this will be heard in clarity and not misunderstood. Because I had a conversation about a month ago, and it's just stuck with me. It's bugged me. It's bugged me. And so I think this is the illustration for it. Um, if I totally support Christian schools, 110%. Totally support Christian education. I'm the Bible guy. I'm like, I'm Bible guy. There's no Karen in this room that loves the Bible more than me or spends more time with the Bible more than me. If you put your kids in Christian schools for Christian education because completely for the, the love of the word of God. Awesome. I mean, like truly, I'm, I, I love it. I love it. But if there's any part of you that has put your children in Christian schools because you abhor secular schools, for example, that they would recognize Pride Month, do Jesus a favor, don't tell anyone you're a Christian. I'm serious. What hope does the rest of the world have if all the Christian students and all the Christian teachers insulate themselves away from the, west of, from the rest of the world. You see, the judgmental side of the spectrum says it's the church and the world, and that's it. They're separated. But the whole of the New Testament is the idea that we are going to Rome. We are going to Spain. It is the church in the world. And so the application, if, you, if there's any part of you that... that that recognizes this in you. Do not hear me that I'm against Christian education, community. I'm, not t- I'm definitely not telling you where to put your kids in school. That's not my job. But it is my job to exhort you to go to the Lord and ask him to reveal what judgmental motives you have in your decision-making. Ask him to show you how to be the church in the world rather than the church and the world and how to de-insulate your life. Now, each end of the spectrum characterizes 
what they believe to be the real people of God, what they to be the real expression of the righteousness of God. But there's, if you're still not, if you're not convinced, there's two problems that each of the side of the spectrum have, uh, why they fail as a worldview, as a way of expressing Christianity. And their outcome, despite being two different sides of the spectrum, their outcome's the same. Number one, the first problem, although having different expressions and interpretations of righteousness, things being set right, things being the way society should be, they have the same, they have the same different expressions, but they have the same outcome, that there would be no more opposites. Okay, no more opposites. One side says you have to, you have, to have the religion of us to make there be no more opposites. And the other side says you have to have the education of us, the enlightenment of us, to have no more opposites. No more they, them, only us and we. However, the first one, having the religion of us, that collapses into fascism. The other one, having the education of us, that, the, the, the enlightenment of us, that collapsed into Marxism, as history shows. The problem that both sides would really have, though, with their outcome being no more opposites, we're all believing the same things, we're all doing the same things, we're all having the same morality, is that Frederick Nietzsche, in his work All Human, All Too Human, in his work The Antichrist, Nietzsche says that peace and order, glad tidings, he calls it in his German, is the status of there being no more opposites, annihilation of cultural distinction. So that's number one. Number two, God's righteousness by view of both camps is a means by which one's personal therapy, the end, is met. The fundamentalist weaponizes God, the liberationist objectifies God. Both are not seeing God as the object of desire, an end in of himself, but as a means to ideological order or therapy. And Paul would say to this, their condemnation is deserved. So you need a third way. And the gospel is the third way. The gospel is the third way because the gospel is the fullness. Salvation and judgment brought together, inseparable. The gospel, as Paul says, brings this about. And this is and it's in the gospel that you see we want, I, I, I romantically want more than a perfect God. And I'm grieving that history doesn't have more than a perfect God yet. It does. For those of you that read history, um, it seems like every, every, every new history thing you read, you just find some new atrocity from World War II, don't you, that the Nazis did. Like the creativity of evil. You just always find, it's like, you think you, read every, you hear all the terrible things and then you read a new thing. And I heard this a while back. I don't remember um, its source. I'm sorry. Um, so if you're looking for my footnotes, they're not in there. <laughs> um, in a concentration camp, the Nazis were making a demonstration to its Jewish prisoners by hanging multiple Jewish people in front of them, one of which was a young boy. And when the floor fell out from underneath the victims, they all dropped, of course, and passed away rather quickly because of their broken necks. But the young boy was so malnourished, so thin and light was his body that his neck would not break. And so the audience of Jews watched the poor child kick and swing until he could no longer breathe. And through the screams and cries of the wailing children in uh, the crowd, a man shouted, where is God? And it was silent for only a moment when someone in the crowd shouted back, he's there, hanging next to the boy. Because you see, the boy doesn't need a perfect God abstractly protects him, saves him, or abstractly punishes his torturers. He needs more than that. Should the boy come through Luther's doors of paradise and gateway into heaven, this boy needs a savior. He needs a judge. But he needs a faithful one who can vicariously, in a substitution 
of faithfulness exchanged his righteousness for the boy's unrighteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that, why? In him, we would become the righteousness of God. All of history, all its hate, all its need, its deepest longing finds its end in the gospel that reveals the righteousness, the fullness of the righteousness of God. Christ is the clue to history. That's why you need, that's why history needs the fullness of the righteousness of God. How does it happen? How does this come about? The righteousness of God, this is how it happens. The righteousness of God in Scripture is always connected with God's promise. He promises, as Luther said, he promises his righteousness. The gospel comes about by the faithfulness of Christ. Christ alone is God's promise. He is the, he is the exaction, the, 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 the outworking of, I, I, said I'd, I said I'd be here, I said I'd do it, and then I did. Verse 3, Paul notes that humanity's unfaithfulness is not greater than the Lord's faithfulness. Paul says no one can nullify the Lord's faithfulness. But Paul, his objectors say, don't you know that the law of Moses says that the righteousness of God will not relent on his promise to punish the guilty, the sinful? What does Paul say? He points to Psalm 51 in his passage. But Paul's objectors say, oh yes, Paul, Psalm 51 states that there is no sacrifice that the Lord will accept. See, Paul, you're wrong. John 5, 39, 46. You search the scriptures, Jesus says. You think in them that you possess, that you possess eternal life. But as these same scriptures that testify about me, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. What does Paul say to his objectors? You don't get it. You've totally misread it. He says, let the word of God be justified and may he be victorious when he exacts his moment of promise fulfillment. And the Lord has provided a sacrifice, hasn't he? Himself. And you don't want a perfect God. You want something more than a perfect God. What kind of God do you want? You want a righteous God. But more than that, you want a faithful God. Our uh, youngest daughter, she's 10 months old. She's very sweet. She gets beaten up by her older sister a lot, who's three. Um, but she's very sweet, and she never hits back. Her name's Ruth. And Ruth uh, was named after one of my favorite books in the Bible, the book of Ruth. If you love Steinbeck, Yeats, Hemingway, 20th century prose, Ruth is your book. Ruth is your book. Because the book of Ruth is a testimony to the providential faithfulness and outworking of the Lord. That he will deal with sin, but he will not let those who seek refuge leave them outside. The story, the book of Ruth, is set in a dark time in Israel's history. And it concerns a Jewish woman, woman named Naomi. She suffers great tragedy and loss. Her husband dies, and then their two adult sons, they die. And in her, uh, in her grief, she releases the two daughter-in-laws that she has, both of whom are pagan descent, and she tells them, go find new husbands that can take care of you and give you children. 
And uh, the three women, they grieve, there's a scene where they grieve together and they wail together. And the first daughter-in-law, Orpah, she kisses Naomi goodbye and she leaves. But the second daughter-in-law clings to Naomi and her name is Ruth. And Ruth says to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there, I will be buried. And so this, the story of tragedy and loyalty turns into a story of hope. And then it turns into a love story. The Lord provides for Naomi and Ruth in their new life. Ruth meets a man named Boaz. And they fall in love and they get married. And they take Naomi into their home. And they move to a land called the House of Bread. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Naomi, thanks to Boaz and Ruth, she finally gets her first grandbaby, a baby boy. And if you know the ending of the story, his name is Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. And David, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph. Joseph, the husband of Mary, from whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, according to the flesh, who is God above all, blessed forever. Amen. You don't want a perfect God, you see? Doesn't move the needle for you, does it? But I tell you a story about a little girl, the Lord's faithfulness. You want that. You want a faithful God that acts righteously, fulfills his promise. But beyond all that, if that's not enough, you don't just want a righteous God and you don't just want a faithful God. You know what God you want? You want a God that dies for you. Because the book of Ruth, beyond everything else, and there are so many details in the book of Ruth that point to Christ, it's ridiculous. But beyond all that, the book of Ruth goes to show there is only one person in all of history, and he is the clue to history, that is faithful enough to say, where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried for you. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God fully, completely, consuming history. To close, we're going to do, I'm, I'm, I want to invite you to the Lord's Supper as we close here. And I mentioned Bethlehem, it's called the House of Bread. Um, that's what it means, Bethlehem. And in Leviticus 2, there's, there's a, instructions to give a thanks offering. How the Jews would give a thanks offering. And it was called the offering of the grain. And first, they would anoint the grain with frankincense, perfume, before they would give a thanks offering of the bread. And in Mark 14, and there came a woman on Passover, with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it out over his head. And Jesus said, She has done a good deed to me. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. So if you want to, before you leave today, take of the bread, give thanks for the, the offering that was given on your behalf the testimony 
But the Lord's faithful. He's faithful in your life, and he's faithful in history. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word being found true. And I, I, I pray that, it was, that my words were found in grace as well. And we thank you for your body, the only body, physical body, that never relented on their promise, that was there when we needed you to be there. And we thank you that you say, I will be with you to the end of the age. All things pass away, but your word. And it is that name in Jesus, the church says, amen.